Good morning. Good morning. Today marks the, the beginning of Holy Week, and I want to welcome you into Holy Week as we celebrate a day that we have historically looked at known as the triumphal entry of Jesus, a period, a point that was captured by all gospel writers, everyone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record what we're about to look at today, but it is in the gospel of John that I feel we capture the apostle of love's angle on the account that we're about to read. Now, there is an entire setting that has to set the table for us. Today, you're going to get a lot of scripture, but um, I think it's important that we, we celebrate what happened as we come around the scriptures. Not all of it will be on the screen. Some of it you're just going to have to dial in and listen as we get there. But after coming out of John 11 into John 12, where we will be today in the core of our study, John 12, 12 through 19, so seven verses. You're going to get a lot today, though. Um, Out of John 11, you have Jesus weeping over the death of Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved this family. Very close to them. And it says that he prayed unto the Father. And when he prayed, he even prayed, I'm not crying out to you, Father, for my benefit, but for the benefit of those who are hearing, who are seeing this take place. As Lazarus has been in the grave for four days, he yells, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the grave, the boulder's been removed, and the people celebrate. This happens just days, if not a few weeks before Uh, what we're about to look at today, the triumphal entry of Jesus. So just weeks before this period where we're going to start today, you have the miracles and ministry of Jesus culminate at the raising of Lazarus. What that does in this city of Bethany, just two miles east of Jerusalem, is the word of the, the coming Messiah has spread. And you're going to read throughout these texts over and over again how large crowds are forming. We're going to talk about just how large these crowds had gotten. Everything in the, in the Israel world, like the Jewish world, is coming to a fever pitch. It's bubbling over. Roman oppression has them down. They don't even know it, but they're Their celebrated leaders are oppressing them, and they are at a place where they are desperate, and desperation starts to pronounce itself. Before we get into verse 12, I just want to look at the beginning of chapter 12 of John, and it sets the stage for where we are. Now, I've titled today's message, The Coming King and Our Responses. Our responses to the coming king are incredibly important. So John 12, verse 1 says, just listen, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany. Where Lazarus had lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. This is at Simon the leper's house, whom Jesus healed of leprosy. Martha served while Lazarus was there reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, a really expensive uh, uh, fragrant oil that could be drawn from a specific plant that's found in the Himalayas. It's a very expensive uh, um, oil. And so this perfume is poured all over Jesus' feet. She empties it. She undoes her hair, which was something that would not have happened for a dignified woman in that day. She wipes her, his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, explaining the value. He did not so. 
He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he himself was a thief, keeper of the money bag who used to help himself to it often. Jesus replied, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this very perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews had found out that Jesus was there in Bethany and came, not only because of him, but because they wanted to see Lazarus raised. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus, going after Jesus and putting their faith in him. So there's this dinner set at Simon the leper's house. Lazarus is there. It is, the dinner is to celebrate the raising of Lazarus, to honor Jesus as their guest. Martha is serving in worship like we read about before in her, in her way. Mary has found this impressively... Uh, expensive perfume. She saved it for this day. She pours it all on Jesus and her, her hair is undone. She wipes his feet in celebration. Judas, one of his disciples, the one who was known and called as a known thief, but been given responsibility by Jesus to carry and care for their finances. He was a financier. He was going to carry the money bags to all these men, these 11, 11 other men in Jesus who have lived nomadically for three years, following Jesus, taking nothing with them, not even an extra coat, they're going to put the thief in charge of the money bag because Jesus deemed that the case. He looks at this, and he's heard Jesus now from John 11 and a few passages before to now again here in this moment say, I'm going to die. He's telling him. He's telling him, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die. This is not the Messiah that Judas pictured. This is not who he planned. What he planned in his mind, like the other uh, Jews of his day, like the other disciples who had followed him, that the Messiah would come as a promised king and we would reign as a military power over the rest of the world together. But Jesus keeps talking about his death. And now he says, that she did this to prepare for my burial. Who is this Jesus? It's not at all what I expected. This is not at all what we were taught. Surely this is not the man we expected him to be. And so you see the start of his very betrayal that will take place at the end of the week. This sets the stage. People are desperate because they are under Roman rule. The We'll read about this in a moment. We're going to go back to John 11. We're going to see just how desperate the chief priests speak of this Roman rule. And where we find the people is they have heard that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. They've left Jerusalem. They're coming in because it was always prophesied that Messiah would come on a Passover. So Jerusalem is filled with people some of which have come out to Bethany, two miles east, to gather because they want to see Lazarus. They want to celebrate Jesus. So as we start in John 12, and we see Jesus make his way into the city on this day, you have two large crowds that have gathered, one that is in the city already, and one that is formed at Bethany that is walking behind him, sandwiching his entrance. So when we think about the palm fronds coming down, think about this picture. Think about what is taking place and just how anticipatory people are. Now, we cannot quantify this entirely. I cannot say this is a factual statement. But one census from this day quantifies that 256,000 plus lambs were slain during this week for Passover. If you were to do the math and you looked at the average lamb feeding about 10 people, two families, at Passover, 
you can, do, you can see that that means if this math is right, if this census is accurate, well, there's no way to identify that, that there could have been upwards of 2.5 million people in the city of Jerusalem at this time awaiting Jesus. I think in our day, looking back, we too often miss just how massive this moment truly is. Just how massive this entire week truly is. We have this mindset, it happened in this little village with 30 obscure people and there he was on the cross. No, the city of Nashville is dwarfed by the size of people that have gathered in this space. There's less people in our greater region from Murfreesboro to Clarksville than there were in this city of Jerusalem on the day that Jesus makes his entrance. Now again, I can't, I can't give you the assurance that this many people have said, but if this census is accurate, just gives us a picture of just how much larger this moment is in our history. And this is the most historic moment in, it changes the trajectory of history, of our entire world, eternity. This is the most historic moment the world has ever seen. And all of the eyes of the world are on Jerusalem. So, verse 12, it says, The next day, the crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written and these things had been done. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him up from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is gone after him. Everyone has given attention to Jesus. The entire world has gone after him. First point, it's simple. We're saved. We're saved. The Israelites in this moment have had such an oppression at such a heavy level of desperation that they are crying out, Hosanna, we're saved. There are two interpretations. From the Hebrew, it would be that we're saved. But in the Greek, and more contextual to this moment, more contextual right here to what is taking place, it means save now. And they understand they understand that they need to be immediately saved. How many of you um, understand that when someone is held underwater against their will, the only thing they begin to think about as they feel breath leave their body is that next breath of air that they need to survive? You know what I'm talking about? Has anyone ever been at this moment? Okay, I need you to picture that kind of welling within them. The people just know they need a breath of air. Without it, they're dead. Once able to free themselves from the, someone holding them underwater, someone who is being held against their will will emerge and take a deep breath, a gasp in of air. It cannot be understated just how desperate the Jews are in this moment. Their desperation in these people has brought the entire world to a fever pitch, and now they know that they need saving. At the end of John 11, after the raising of Lazarus, you see in verse 47 
the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they gather and they, they say this. The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and said, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many miracles and signs. He's been doing this for three years, and now he's raised the dead. If we let him going on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you hear that? So the people understand that they are under Roman oppression, but the religious leaders go, if we don't stop this, we're going to lose power ourselves, and Israel won't even exist. Hello? So we're about to lose all our influence and our people are going to be scattered. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and he said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than a whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, plotted to take his life. In fact, the moment we just read about his triumphal entry, it says they went on from that moment looking for him. Jesus, it says, retreated for the next few weeks. He retreated by himself, and they had put out scouts to find Jesus. They wanted to know where he was because they want to take his life. They're anticipating him coming in Jerusalem for the Passover, the celebration of, of, it's a global feast for all Jews. They come to Jerusalem to celebrate for a week. So they're anticipating him coming. They are setting a trap with anticipation that they can find him. So when you hear the crowd goes to Bethany because they've heard that Lazarus is raised, they, find, they catch wind, they find it. And they go, surely he's coming to Jerusalem. Let's let the plan begin. So deeply oppressed by Rome, the people need relief, unknowingly oppressed by their spiritual leaders who are evoked right now by the, by the miracle of Lazarus, by the ministry of Jesus to take his life. Now, here's the thing. We're not, we're not upset that they want to take his life. Jesus came to die. The hosannas that happened at the beginning of this week are going to drastically change by the end of the week into words of crucify him. But the hosanna saved now is very real. They are celebrating their relief. They need it. They feel it. They don't even know how oppressed they are. Their religious leaders are trying to keep power over them. And, and there's a dramatic change as Jesus comes in on this donkey's colt. Not even the donkey. He comes in on the baby of the donkey, just to further pronounce the humility by which Jesus is going to save everyone, giving his life so that you and I might live, so that all humanity, not just the Jew, but all humanity could be redeemed. He has this moment, and uh, <laughs> the, pe the people are like about to miss it. So Jesus has allowed this, this moment with Lazarus to happen. And for the first time in his ministry, what he sees when every single person was created in his image to worship him before the foundation of the world, before the garden, before sin marred the, the earth. When everyone was created to worship him, the moment with the palm branches, which are laid down in celebration of a king, 
It, show, it shows submission of my life as a subject in his kingdom. So I'm surrendering my life. That's what this image shows. The last time we saw this happen historically was about 100 years before this when the Maccabees overthrew Acre. And they thought, was this the Messiah? It clearly wasn't, but this is the closest that we have with this picture of palm fronds. They were always used in celebration of the kingdom. And now you have the most joyous moment in the history of all of Israel because of the promised king who's going to reverse the curse and set us free eternally is here. Until this moment, Jesus has always said, it's not my time. In Mark 6, after feeding 20,000 people, we, saw, we call this the feeding of the 5,000, but we know that it was at least 20,000 people just because we didn't count children and women, I mean, yeah, women and children, that they, there were far more than 5,000 there when he did that on many resources. In that moment, they thought, this man can feed tens of thousands of people with little resource. A part of the curse at, the, at Eden was that we were going to toil in the land to make our food. Now we have a king that can produce food for us. Let's put him on our shoulders. Let's take him into Jerusalem. Throw a ticker tape parade. Let's overthrow Rome now. Let's have our military status aligned. We are going to be a military power to run the world is the mind of the Jew in this moment. And Jesus says, it's not my time. He sends them away. He goes up to the mountain by himself to pray for 12 hours while his disciples are fighting for his lives. I want you to catch the dramatic change. Jesus isn't stopping it now because God has allowed this time to come and this is the appointed time for people to face their king, to see their Messiah. And even though what Jesus is about to do was unexpected by everyone on the planet, even though it had been foretold and he had been telling him, I have to die so that you can live and the end of the week will end in horror for many of them. As they come to this moment right here, though it be short-lived, just days, they are celebrating their king the way they were des designed to from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, the way that we were all designed to worship him, surrendering our lives before him, giving him due credit, due honor, due glory. And Jesus, for the first time in all his ministry, because this is the time that the Father appointed to change the trajectory of eternity for them and for you and I. He's not stopping it. He's allowing the praise and the crowds to largely gather so that they can see. They can see what they need. And so, the posture here as they yell out, save now, they're kneeling, they are in submission. They need, but they're thinking how many of you ever have recognized how short-sighted some of us can be? How many of you have ever had something desperate happen in your life and you're like, I need reprieve like right now? Okay, so they understand the Roman oppression they're under immediately and they want salvation immediately. They want that now. I could not help but think as I was driving back last night um, through the storms and I got home and I caught word that even, even last night we've had a couple pass. One story I read talked of a guy who came upon a road that was flooded and he could not get any further. He left his car and he was swept away unto his death by the raging flood. I need just to understand, like the people right here go, we need something to fix this right now. But what Jesus is about to fix is the trajectory of eternity, everything. We have had a number of people in our region, whether it be the tornadoes from just a few days ago or last night, 
I feel that we've become so desensitized that we have had at least seven people that I can count and body count step into eternity in the last week and we go, yeah, two more died. Does that make sense? It's like uh, immediately uh, the road is blocked and we need that to recede. Uh, some houses need to be worked on. Seven people stepped into eternity. And I don't know if they knew Jesus. I have no idea. And we get short-sighted by the immediate need in front of us, the crisis of tyranny right before us, and we miss that maybe Jesus coming in meant something on a grander scale than just relief from Roman oppression this week in this moment. Hello? Maybe it meant something far larger for the world that has now taken attention and is looking at Jerusalem. And we can identify because I could not help. I was here in 2010. And here's the thing that I found myself saying. This is how desensitized I've become. Floodwaters come up, and my first thought is, it's not as bad as 2010. I've seen worse. Right? Anyone else feel that way? It's like, shame on me. Someone's dead. And just tried to get out of their car. Got swept away by inches that became feet of water. And they were probably fighting for that last breath. Just like I said, held under by the power of the storm. And they have now stood before in the presence of God. And I don't know if they know him. Awaiting judgment. And here's, here's what I need to tell us. As much as these people are screaming, save now. I'm just screaming, save. I'm just like, today may be the day of salvation for someone either listening online or in this room. I, we might need to be saved right now, but it's going to change the trajectory of eternity for you and for me if we just trust Jesus. And for those who have trusted upon Jesus and you've experienced the taste of salvation, listen to me. I'm, I'm walking through this conviction myself. I have been convicted by this thought. How many of us sing more and say more about what Jesus has done for us than we do that Jesus is just Jesus saves, period. I got convicted this week by someone who wrote something that was so profound back in the 1600s. It said, if you speak more of what Jesus has done for you than you do speak of Jesus, then you're not actually teaching the gospel. Because I... I, I know what he did for me. I feel that. I, it is personal. I understand. But there's more than just the tyranny, the urgent going on right here. There's more than just the crisis of the moment. It's not just something immediate, not just something temporal relief. This is eternal relief, and the world is missing it as Jesus comes in. Not, not on some war horse, on a donkey's baby. And the only reason the donkey is there is so the baby knows where to follow. Because a baby's always going to follow their mama. Amen? As people to the tune of, we know hundreds of thousands, but if this sense is right, millions have gathered around Jesus as he enters the city. They did not realize just how big this moment actually was. They're ready. They expected upon Jesus' entrance that they would overthrow Rome and be freed from that oppression militarily. They thought that he would establish his throne. They thought that they would themselves become a global power as the people of God expected to become his royal court, his royalty. They expected to rule now and forever. 
over everyone who had historically oppressed them, enslaved them, held them captive to bondage and exile. How many of you have ever been held captive by someone, whether emotionally, physically, you've been hurt by another person who, just like you and I, worshiped themselves and they wanted power? He's going, I'm going to relieve not just that. They wanted relief. They wanted to be saved right here and now from that. But he's going, I'm, do, I'm, doing, I'm doing so much more. They expected this to be eternal, but they never expected eternity to include you and I. The people celebrating here never expected Gentile and Samaritan dogs to share space with them in heaven. Consider that even Jesus' own disciples here had a short, very human view of the kingdom from a skewed perspective that they'd been taught by all their leaders before them. We already read about Judas and how he complained about this expensive resource that could have fed the poor was just poured out on the feet of Jesus. Listen, if the most expensive things in our life aren't poured out on the person of Jesus, then we don't truly understand who Jesus is. Hello? If there's anything that we reserve for ourselves that is not put at his feet, like the palm fronts here or the perfume that was priceless, if it's not poured out on the feet of Jesus, then we may be in, in fear. We may, I fear, we may be misconstruing who Jesus is, that our salvation is based in the person of Jesus and not just what he can do for us. Now, the disciples, John is writing looking back at this moment. Mind you, he's not writing what took place on the night of the dinner. He's looking back now. This is after Judas has betrayed Jesus. This is after Judas has hung himself. But he's writing the one who would often help himself to the money bag. He's writing back going, you know what? That motive probably wasn't pure. In fact, it wasn't pure. Judas steps up, challenges Jesus because Judas had another plan. And here's the thing. Can you, we give Judas a really bad rap, right? As a betrayer, he was playing the role that he needed to in the kingdom. He had a heart much like the religious leaders who expected to reign and didn't want to give up their power. And that's what he did. And he thought, if Jesus is not who we expected, I'm going to turn over this betrayer. It's a holy moment. This person who, who is blaspheming should, deserves to die and I'm going to get paid for it. So we give this guy a bad rap, but I don't know that any of us wouldn't have responded the same way. In fact, I'm not sure that most of us haven't responded this way. How many of you have ever slapped Jesus in the face for what he did for you on the cross? And so here's, here's the point. Judas, Judas was a known thief. And listen to this. This is how Jesus responds to a known thief. He calls him to follow him as a disciple, to make him a part of the inner circle. He calls him and then and then Jesus looks at the one who's a known thief with all these other vagabonds, these other guys. They're not much better in character. And he goes, Judas, can I count on you to take care of the money for us? Who, who had more grace for Judas than anybody? Who offered more love and hope than Jesus for Judas than anyone? No one. And then that's why I believe Judas goes off in depression after what he had done, throwing the money, the blood money, back at the feet of the Sanhedrin, and he hangs himself because he betrayed the only person who ever really believed in him. Did Jesus believe in you? Even though you betrayed him, 
Even though Romans 5, 8 says that while you and I were still sinners in our self-worship, seeking glory for ourselves, betraying the one we were truly due to give glory to, he died for us and gave his life so that you and I could live. Psalm 34, 18 says that he is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Today, what I want to say to you is as much as they, they knew they needed a Savior in this moment, they were celebrating him on this day, and that celebration would turn towards the end of the week, but they were genuinely celebrating him as he came in. I, I, I got to tell you, I identify so much because I think, I think the celebration was not just short-lived or short-sighted. They only understood what they wanted out of Jesus to do for them. They only understood what they needed, and that was relief. They needed that breath. They weren't really, they weren't really thinking about Jesus himself, God himself stepping into our lives to fix our mess. They were crushed by oppression, but not even to the extent that they realized. And if they would have fallen in love with the very person of Jesus, I, I, I get asked this all the time, like, Justin, what's heaven going to be like? It's the presence of Jesus. And we write about it in, in lots of different ways. We write about it with streets of gold. And we write about it with like mansions. And, and here's the thing. I want to ask, are you more motivated by streets of gold and mansions than you are the person of Jesus? Because you may just, you may just have a struggle, and that's our second point. And I'm going to give you our second point, and I'm going to go back and read the end of this, this passage in John 12 that explains and pours it all out. But here it is. Without Jesus' death, you and I don't have life. We don't have the opportunity to be in his presence. But do you care more about him or what he can do for you? Do we care more about who Jesus is, our Savior, our Lord? Because he can't be Savior if he's not also boss, if he's not king, if he's not Lord, he's both. And salvation is the person of Jesus. And heaven is the presence of Jesus. And we might, we might explain the presence of Jesus with mansions and streets of gold. <laughs> but the question we've got to ask, is it more about Jesus or what he can do for us? I'm reading on in verse 20. It says this. Now, there were some Greeks who were among them. These are, these are like you and I. They had gone up to the festival of Passover to worship as well. They came to Philip, who was at Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request and said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip turned and told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come in the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies and produces many seeds, anyone who's... If it dies and produces many seeds, then valuable. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it and find eternal life. What he was saying was, hey, if I were going to die for nothing, then it would be like that wheat kernel falling to the ground and dying. But I'm going to die to produce many more seeds. I'm giving away eternal life. I'm going to give my life so that they can live. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, your servant must also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice, listen to this, this is so important. Then a voice came from heaven that says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. 
In John 11, Jesus prayed, I didn't, I didn't say this for my benefit, but for yours. A voice from heaven, I've already glorified it. The crowd was there and heard it and said it thundered. And others said maybe an angel was speaking to him. Jesus said, the voice that you heard was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. And he's just days from it. The crowd spoke up. We've heard the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man will be lifted up? Who is the son of man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light with you only a little while longer. Walk away. Sorry, walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in darkness does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. Those many seeds I was talking about. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left them and hid himself from them. And this is beautiful. Listen, talking about our very responses. Even after Jesus, he had performed these many signs in their presence. They still, not, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah. It said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. For this very reason, they could not believe. Because, as Isaiah said elsewhere, he's blinded their eyes, he's hardened their hearts. They can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn and be healed. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him in advance. Now, I'm going to read a section of this scripture because it has to be read, and I need us all to understand one title. Are we more afraid of man or of God? Listen to the response of the religious leaders who have just experienced everything, seen Lazarus raised in Jesus himself. Verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among their leaders, believed in Jesus, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than they did the praise that came from God. Then Jesus cried out, he said, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as light that no one believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come into the world to judge it, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them on that last day. Verse 49, for I did not speak on my own, but my Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken, every single word. And I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. We just sang, my soul longs after you. My heart longs after you. Not what you can do for me, but you. Do we want Jesus or simply want what he can do for us? Which is more important? Do we want God's way or, like them, do what we interpret or expect God's way to be? And find ourselves heartbroken by the way things turned out. How many of you, how many of you have ever had something turn out in a way that was different than you expected it going in? Got on the other side of that fire, and when you're looking at it previously before walking through it, you're like, it should go this way. It didn't go anything like that, but you got on the other side, God got involved, and it turned out way better. Bigger than you could have imagined. 
right? Here's what I'm trying to say. We got to have God's perspective on this. Like we talked about last week, he cannot be Savior unless he's Lord. We have to be able to take the reins of our lives and place them completely in his hands. He has to be able to be in complete control. We cannot underestimate the desire that we all have to have control. How many of you are a little bit control freaks in here? Like me, like control. We can't underestimate our desire to be right. Hello? Hey, this isn't how I expected it to be. This, this can't be right, like Judas. How, we can't underestimate the influence culture has had on us. Everyone around here is going, dude, we're dying out here. Rome is sitting on us heavy. Look around you. We just went through a global pandemic. We got tornadoes. We got floods. We got people dying. People go, is it the birth pains? It's getting hard out here. Where's Jesus' church? And are they singing the praise of Jesus more than what he has done for them? And when they sing of what he's done for them, does it celebrate more his story than your own? Amen? Verse 16, it says, The disciples didn't even realize that everything that had taken place had already been written by Jesus because that was fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal, of a donkey. Jesus is saying, look, I'm giving you a picture of the way that I expect you to love in the world. I called you to love like me, and that is from a humble position. Paul wrote it like this through the epistle. He said, I'm just an under rower. I'm somewhere down. I'm not captain in the ship. I'm somewhere down here in the belly with the slaves, just under rower. I'm a bus boy. I'm the guy that's getting the least amount of tips, doing the most amount of work. Like he expects us to lift everyone's needs above our own. And my question is, how many of you have people in your life who are like literally running through this world and they just went through a period that exasperated all the things they struggle with underneath and the oppression that they are under because of their own sin and self-worship has come to the top. And so I know of families that are being destroyed. I'm literally counseling a family, not even in this state, where a woman is in ministry in a church and her, her husband walked away four months ago and is living with his business partner, leaving the two children, five and two, under her care. Just done. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard or know of a story very similar coming out of this past year? Shake your head. There are people who stepped into eternity because a virus hit and they couldn't breathe. When you're put on a, on a, a respirator, trust me, like being held underwater, all you want is to be able to take your own breath on your, your own. You just care about where your next breath is coming from. You don't care about other things. You're fighting for the things most important. Jesus came into the, the city of Jerusalem during this week to not just give a breath for the people in a moment. He was coming to give breath to the entire world if they would receive him. And that, that breath was going to last for eternity. The question is, will we respond much like Mary who poured out that perfume at Jesus' feet because they just wanted him, or we respond like the Pharisees, like Judas. And we go, I don't want my control ripped from me. 
I don't want this taken. I, I like Jesus, but I like what Jesus can do for me. How many of us are going to respond like the Pharisees? Acknowledge Jesus, but the fear of man. Listen to this. Verse 42. They are, they are literally, some believed on him, but I don't want to be put out of the synagogue. I don't want to lose my status, so I'm not going to come forward about that. How dangerous is that, that we, can, we are more concerned about what people think than what God thinks, that it changes our eternal state, and we stay enslaved in our sin, separated from God, no breath, no reprieve, to suffer damnation separate from his presence forever because we were concerned in a moment that I might lose my, I might lose my country club membership. Hello? In the end, this is the only question. What's more important, the praise of man or praise of God? And which will it be? We can live for ourselves right now and lose our lives, abundant life and eternal, what Jesus was saying, or we can choose to crucify our own desires, the temporal, the immediate, the selfish, in this dying world to gain peace, purpose, and eternity because he came to die so that we could have those things. Guys and gals, whether you're listening online or you're in this room, I need you to understand. We celebrate at Christmas that Jesus came, but he always came for this very moment. Jesus came to die. And he came to die so that you and I could live, so that we wouldn't have to. This is what we celebrate at Holy Week. He is our king, and he deserves our praise with our palm fronds and lives thrown face down before him, prostrate, because we are completely surrendered to our king. We're completely surrendered to someone who changed his directory for our eternity. Holy Week, in all its various emotions, evident even in this passage, does not change that our hope is solely found in the person of Jesus and our faith is solely found in the person of Jesus. Apart from him, we do not have life, we do not have breath, we do not have salvation. And I love this picture because I think as Jesus is pouring into the city with maybe millions around him, he was finally receiving the praise that he is worthy of. How many of you want to see Jesus be given praise that he is worthy of? In the end, Revelation 7, 9 says that every tribe and tongue was gathered there, dressed in white with palm fronds on their hands, waving him in the direction of the king, throwing them down at his feet. In the end, it says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess Jesus as Lord. He's going to receive his praise, and he'll receive it for all eternity. The question is, will we be a part of it? Do we trust the person of Jesus? Do we trust that? And this morning, as they cried out, Hosanna, they wanted salvation right now, right here. If you're listening online or you're in this room and you go, I, I feel nothing but deep oppression inside. I feel this deep, hot uh, burden, this conviction that this is what I need. I need to be relieved. I need to be freed. Today may be the day of your very salvation. They were celebrating on the day he entered because they thought today was the day of their salvation. They didn't know by the end of the week their world and all eternity would be saved because of what Jesus did. You don't have to miss this moment. You today can find salvation and reprieve and freedom, the breath you need. If you're online, I want to encourage you to email me, prayerathefellowship.cc. I'd love to pray with you so we can talk through what that means. If you're here in this room, I'll be right over here. Do not leave. I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. I'm going to ask the band to come back. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Here's what I want to ask us to think on. 
What step does Jesus want you right now to take in following him? What is that next step? It may be to answer this question. Do I sing about him or do I sing about what he's done for me? Do I want him and his very presence or I just want what he can do for me, church? And if, if you, like me, are wrestling with this question and have found yourself going, man, I've not sung enough the praise of the person of Jesus. Man, he is worthy of my palm frond. He's worthy of my life, face down before him. And I have been celebrating all he's done, and that is a part of it. But more than that, he's done that not just for me. He's done that for everyone. And I just want to celebrate the person of Jesus. So right now, as we sing these words, are you available to give to him whatever he desires right now? Anything that has been held back in you, places where you're still holding the reins, will you just surrender? Will you just submit that to him? And as the band sings over us a prayer of response, will you join them by responding in surrender, submission, loving subjects of our one and only true King. Father, we love you. As we respond to you, we respond to Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you for his love. And we pray in this room you'd have your way with us. We ask this in his name.